This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. For more book recommendations, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page and on Twitter at Burn555555. If you enjoy these podcast episodes, you should check out the Literary Salon tab on my website and sign up for our newsletter. We are hosting some fabulous online events in 2021, and we also host a wonderful online book club for anyone looking to discuss books with other book lovers. Today, I am interviewing Julia Cook about Come Fly the World. Julia's journalism has been published in Time, Smithsonian, and Conde Nast Traveler. She is the author of The Other Side of Paradise, Life in the New Cuba, and the daughter of a former Pan Am executive. She lives in Woodstock, Vermont. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome, Julia. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to talk about Come Fly the World. Awesome. Well, as we get started, why don't you just give me a quick summary of the book? Yeah. So I initially wrote the book because I met a couple of stewardesses at a Pan Am Historical Foundation event, and I was just enthralled by them. The way that they spoke, the way that they moved, what they wore, how they're they're bearing, but especially the thing that I loved about them was that when I asked them about their experiences as over the course of this event, as I was talking to them, they the way that they talked about history and world events, I found just incredible. They they had this authority and intimacy. It was that was like the texture of how they spoke. They talked about historical events as if they had a martini with the prime minister or with the Beatles or movie stars, diplomats, CIA officers. Their world was peopled with really incredible characters and took place in, in amazing places. And one of the women went so far as to say that when I offered her a ride back home from where this event had taken place. She immediately jumped at it and said, oh, yeah, no, I never buy a return ticket from anywhere because you never know what's going to happen. And I loved it. I just wanted to know everything about this woman. And the more I met other stewardesses, the more I wanted to know everything about them. So what I wound up learning was that these women were kind of something between an adrenaline junkie, a flaneuse, and a third wave feminist. And I found them incredible. Well, that was the thing that I think struck me so much as I was reading your book was how important they were to feminism. And you had a statement you made at the end where you say these women made room over decades for the women of my generation to move with more ease through more of the world than women ever had before. And I loved that. And I've thought about it so much since I finished reading because I had just that had never occurred to me before. I'm so glad to hear you say that because that was one of my goals in writing this book. Honestly, I was really struck by how much I owed them as a group. And I really hope that other people walk away with that takeaway. I definitely think they will, because you do a wonderful job of laying that out and explaining where some of these women were during very pivotal moments. Like, I had no idea Pan Am was involved with the Vietnam War, and maybe involved is not the exact right term, but that they helped ferry soldiers in and out into R&R and helped with that evacuation. That was all completely new to me and just so compelling. Totally. I mean, Pan Am had been intertwined with all of the U.S. government's military actions for years. And you don't think about the fact that if an airline is ferrying whatever they're ferrying, whether it's passengers or troops or or any passenger load, and the airline's crews are all women, then women are doing this. And women who who haven't necessarily been trained for the exact circumstance that they're being put in, they're having to make it up as they go along. They're addressing really shockingly dangerous and important 
moments. They're, they're really improvising. So that I also, that I found amazing too. And that they were able to improvise so effectively. Completely. The other thing that was fascinating to me, and I guess I'm a little young to remember that, was that apparently terrorists overtook airplanes fairly regularly, and it wasn't all that frightening then. At the beginning, it wasn't all that frightening because these hijackers would get on the plane and instruct the stewardess usually to tell the pilot where they wanted to go. And sometimes they were armed, sometimes they weren't. I read of one story about a guy who basically had like, a, I think it was a lemon and some sticks that were wrapped up in aluminum foil. And he said it was a bomb. An author named Brendan Corner, K-O-E-R-N-E-R, wrote a book called The Skies Belong to Us about what he terms the golden age of skyjacking, which goes into much more detail than I could possibly go into right now about all of these hijackings that happened. But the, the fact is that until people started dying, which did begin to happen after a couple of years of these skyjackings, they were just seen as a, a novelty. A lot of the people would go to Cuba. Um, a lot of the hijackers requested to go to Cuba. And so for Americans, this was just right after the embargo had been put into place and they could count on being put up in a hotel and even going to the Tropicana to see the cabaret and having a couple of mojitos. And they really regarded it as a novelty for the most part. And that's just so hard to fathom now. And I think we've lived through 9-11 and some of these other things. And now you hear hijacking and it, it kind of instills terror in you. I just thought that was so interesting to think that it wasn't a big deal. And in fact, a lot of the people were like, okay, great. We've got a night in Cuba. Totally. There was one quote from a female pro golfer that I found amazing who happened to be on one of these flights. And she said that she got more publicity out of being on a plane that was hijacked for Cuba than she ever got for winning the women's golf tournaments. And I found that really depressing. But also, in a nutshell, that's what that, that tells you so much about hijackings and how important women's sporting events were seen in those years. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. That's a kind of funny, but not really, but more than anything depressing that that's a commentary on how everything was viewed. Totally. And of course, it wasn't always seen as a novelty. Things changed pretty quickly once they got a little more dangerous. Once the stakes started getting higher and higher, that's when the tone of these skyjackings really changed. Absolutely. I was just sort of enthralled with this idea that it wouldn't wouldn't even be a big deal to have your plane skyjacked, but you're right, it, that wasn't lasting for very long. But just the idea that you'd be like, oh, okay, just doesn't even seem something we can fathom now. For sure. Tell me about your research. You must have had to do a lot and then kind of winnow down. So I, I really let the oral history, my interviews with the women themselves, guide the research that I was doing around those interviews. My, my approach was to toggle between reading a lot, interviewing a lot, and going to newspapers and archives to confirm the details around what my interviewees told me. Once I'd found the women who would be my main subjects, their memories are all very good, and they all were very forthright about telling me when they didn't remember something. So they would they would tell me their personal experience of an event, and then I would go and read the newspapers of the time, and I would look to see what I could find out in academic books about the general subject that they were talking about, or the places that they were, then I would look and then I would go back to them and say, okay, so this is what I found out in this newspaper about this event that you described to me. Is there any more you can tell me about this one specific moment? And then we would kind of take it from there. It took a lot of patience on their end. They were very generous with their time. I talked to a lot of different people about, you know, to kind of try to get a 360 of things that happened. 
memory can be so flawed. So that's interesting. You know, you kind of start with them. They tell you the stories. You go do the research and you can either come back and say, do you remember more? And that may trigger something or it may make them think that's not how I remember it unfolding for me. Exactly. And that was what was really interesting. So two notes on exactly what you're saying. First of all, this was a key reason why I picked the women that I picked who wound up becoming the subjects in the book. Their memories were all incredibly good. The women that I wound up focusing on both were had the time and willingness to spend all that time with me and their memories I found were really excellent. So that was really important. So I also decided that I was only going to include something in the book if either I could get it confirmed by two independent people who told me they shared the same memory of the same event, or if someone told me about something that I could then confirm in a newspaper or some other third party confirmation. So there was, there's a lot that I didn't include in the book because I couldn't get it confirmed by someone or something else. But that just made me feel a lot more secure about being sure that what I was going to publish was actually a good representation of the past and as close to what happened as we can get with things that happened 50 years ago versus someone's memory being changed by time. And just what they perceived, where they were when the event happened. I mean, there's so many things that go into memories. Completely. Well, I didn't even think about any of that while I was reading. I was just so enthralled with the women's stories and the history. But that that makes perfect sense and helps you kind of make sure everything happened to the best of everyone's ability. But also just so someone doesn't come back and be like, that is not at all what happened. Completely, which may well happen. I mean, who knows? But I feel pretty, pretty confident that I did the best I reasonably could have. It also really made me much more able to immerse myself in the writing of it because I had that security that I was confirming as as best as I could. For sure. Well, how did you decide on the format? I mean, just interviewing certain women, picking a number of them, and then sort of toggling between their stories and history. How did that all come about? I think it was, it, a lot of it was really just instinctive. My experience in the past, much of the writing that I have done in the past has been kind of animated by history, but not really historically grounded, well, historically grounded, but not what you would call history. A lot of my previous reporting, it's been reporting, on the ground reporting. So this book was hard at first to really get a handle on because there was no place that I could go to, to figure out what happened. With most of my reporting, there were places that I could go to and look around and um, observe myself. And you can't really do that with the past. So it was a very different format for me. It was really very instinctive. Again, I I felt very strongly that I wanted firsthand experiences of the women that I was talking to, to to be the focus of the book, mostly because I felt strongly that they were fascinating. And if I had been so fascinated by them, I felt sure that other readers would be too. I also had observed as I started trying to read about um, the experiences of former flight crews, that while a lot of feminist histories and books have a couple of pages about flight attendants and stewardesses and what they had, how their legal battles had changed the second wave feminist movement, those those stories they had a, they always had like a couple of pages, but those pages didn't really go into much depth about the firsthand experiences of the women themselves. They talked about the lawsuits, but not much else. And I found myself really curious to understand these women were so motivated to keep their jobs that they launched national lawsuits. And so why were they so attached to their jobs? Why, beyond wanting to make money and enjoying it, what did they enjoy so much about it? So I really 
I wanted, I really wanted it to be character forward and from their perspectives. Well, it makes the story so much more personal. And I think that that helps too, because it really does kind of put you in the minds and lives of these women and what they're doing, and then helps you understand as a reader why they were so attached to their jobs. But it also, I think, breaks a bunch of stereotypes about flight attendants. I mean, I do think whether it's, I mean, it is wrong, but I mean that the, generally there are a lot of people that sort of view that as a fluffy job. And reading your book, you're thinking, there's no way that's a fluffy job when they're having to fly soldiers to and from Vietnam and deal with these hijackings and anything else they're having to deal with. Totally. I mean, there was a lot of glamour, but there was also a lot of gravity and really a lot of responsibility and a lot of heartbreak. And I think that those two things really were very intertwined. I I talked to one woman who was telling me about how after they came back from these initial R&R runs, from Saigon to these different vacation spots all over Southeast Asia. These women, at the beginning, they lived in, the flight crews lived in Hong Kong, and they would go out at night and just dance all night long. And she said it was the texture of that difference, the movement from taking these troops into and out of a war zone and everything that they saw on those flights, and then dancing cheek to cheek with an attractive gentleman suitor at a rooftop bar later that night that one of these things would not have been as important without the other. You conveyed so well what it was like for them, that it was more positive to be flying them to the R&R versus having to fly them back to Saigon and what the men's faces were like. And you could tell it was rough for them to be heading back into a war zone and all of that. I, I just I thought so much about that since I read your story. I thought a lot about it as I was talking to the women, there were a couple of things that kept recurring among the women that I spoke to. The first is that almost every woman who worked for Pan Am, if you ask her why she wanted to work for Pan Am in the first place, she will say almost a variation on the exact words, I wanted to see the world. And then another, if you talk to women who flew flight crews in and out of Vietnam, they will all comment on the difference between the feeling of being in that metal tube in the sky on your way in versus on your way out. It was really impactful for a lot of them. I'm sure it was. And just to see the way the men were responding, so relieved to be leaving, so depressed to be headed back in, it would be really a hard thing, I think. And I'm sure it stayed with them for the rest of their lives. It did. I went to D.C. for Veterans Day a couple of years ago because I realized that in all of my time talking to stewardesses about the soldiers, I had never talked to the soldiers and now veterans about the women. So I posted up at the Vietnam Memorial and just started talking to to men to ask them if what they remembered about their R&R flights and their flights to and from Vietnam in general. A lot of them really did have vivid memories of not only the planes, but but the women who crewed them. And some of them really didn't. For some of them, it was just a blur of either relief or fear. But I was really glad to, to talk to them. And to know that those women had made a difference for some of them. Absolutely. When I was young, we lived in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and we flew Pan Am back and forth. And we still have some of the little bags that all the toiletries would come in with the Pan Am label on them. But I remember at the time, some of those women being very helpful and bringing us the wings. And I was young and taking care of us. And my mom would have a break for a minute. And it's funny how those memories come back to you as I was reading this book. I was thinking, oh, yeah, that makes sense. They were very helpful in those times. Yeah, my mom also, she really credits the, at that point, they were flight attendants when I was 
traveling Pan Am a lot, but the terminology had, had at that point shifted. My mom credits the flight attendants on Pan Am with really enabling her to, to travel as much as she did with two young children. My mom, you know, I, I think about it now. My mom would hop on a plane to go to Europe with me and my younger sister when we were really, really quite small. She had no, no feeling of trepidation. And when I asked her about how, as, as I was having my, my own children, I was asking her about what, what are your best practices for traveling with kids? And she said something along the lines of, well, my best practices can't possibly be replicated today because we had those awesome flight attendants who were just so helpful with you guys. I asked my mom about this after I read your book and she said the very same thing. That's so interesting. <laughs> I absolutely love covers, and that's actually what drew me first to your book. And as soon as I saw it was about Pan Am, I wanted to read it based on what I was describing about going back and forth from Rio. But how did the cover come about? It's just stunning. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. That was the publishing house. That was Houghton Mifflin. I had very little input into it. They, they have a wonderful design team there. Did you all go back and forth at all on it, or did they just provide it to you and you're like, this is it? There was some back and forth. We really couldn't settle on what we wanted to be reflected in the protagonist, the slightly glamorous but distinctly not smiling woman on the cover, which I really appreciate. We were There was some back and forth about what would be reflected in her sunglasses. And we really had a hard time settling on what the right image was, whether it should be a cityscape at night or a beach or tarmac or war zone or what, what should be reflected. So in the end, that image of a city by the ocean was a good way to to split the difference. I was just going to ask you what city it is because I've got the book right here and I'm now looking in her sunglasses. Miami probably be what I would guess. I I think, and and that would be fitting because that was the site of the first Pan Am flights. We lived in Houston and then we moved to Connecticut and then we moved to Rio. And so we would come back and forth between Houston and Rio because Exxon was based in Houston, or at least what my dad was doing was based in Houston. But at the time, we had to fly to Miami and then fly down to Rio. And so we always stayed in Miami for a few days. Yeah. Pan Am was an airline that only flew internationally. So it didn't have direct flights from that many places. So that, that I would think would be a a perk that you get to stay in in either Miami or LA or San Francisco or New York for a couple of days and then then get on your way. Absolutely. And my parents had a variety of friends that lived in Miami. So it was fun to see them and just have a bit of a break before we took the longer flight. And we came and went through all sorts of places in Central and South America. So it was was a great three years. That's awesome. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you want to tell me about? I am. So I have a couple of short pieces. I, I was so pleased as as work on this book wrapped up last spring, I wound up having some more time to take on some reporting projects and shorter essays because as I was working on this book, I, it was so immersive. I was so deep into these women's stories and just the subject of the book that I, I couldn't really think about much else. So I was really pleased to be able to focus on writing up a couple of pieces that I had kind of backburnered for a couple of years. So I have an essay that'll be out in the fall, I believe, in a literary journal called The Common about Easter Island, which I was working on for a while, where I went on my honeymoon, which was very fun. Oh, I'm so jealous. I've always wanted to go there. It is incredible. It was my husband's bucket list pick. And we we, we did a two-part honeymoon. We went to Easter Island and then Tahiti because I had always wanted to go to Tahiti and he had always wanted to go to Easter Island. And I wound up just completely in love with Easter Island and fascinated by it and reading all about the history, which is pretty controversial. And that's kind of what the, the essay talks about, but I've never been any place like it. it is completely magnetic and it, it just, it's sense of mystery and 
permanence really pulls you in. It's unlike any place I've ever been in my life. So I was very excited to write that essay. And then I have another piece about a really awesome performance art project in quarantine that I am working or finishing up right now. It'll be out, I think, also later this summer. So it's been really fun to be able to work on shorter, shorter pieces again. I'm sure when you were in the middle of the Pan Am book, you were just so immersed in all the details and the stories that to try to pull yourself out of it was difficult. It really was for a while there. Before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. So over the summer, well, no, this is last fall. I'm not sure when I got the book. Anyway, I read an awesome little book by a guy named Leonard Corin, who wrote a book about wabi-sabi, which is like the Japanese aesthetic concept called Musings of a Curious Esthete, which I really enjoyed. I'm also reading a book that is coming out called Fierce Poise, which is a biography of Helen Frankenthaler, the visual artist from the 50s, which has been really, really interesting. And then I've also been rereading a couple of old favorites and kind of travel animated standbys, essays by... Jeff Dyer and Martha Gellhorn, Mavis Gallant short stories. I love Mavis Gallant. A lot of her writing is very international, but it's not really focused on traveling at all. She's a Canadian writer who lived for a long time in Paris. And then a book that I keep always come back to called Things I Don't Want to Know by Deborah Levy, which has been a really interesting book to read a couple of different times over the years because I always find myself identifying with different aspects of it. So that's always fun to reread old books and and understand a new thing about them. I think as we get older and we're passing through different portions of our life, then you do really identify with different things. Absolutely. Well, Julia, I have so enjoyed speaking with you about Come Fly the World and just talking about the Pan Am stewardesses and the, the whole experience. Thanks for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Julia's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.